0: Hello and welcome to the John Mark Coma Teachings Podcast. I'm Strawn Coleman, your host and part of the teaching team here at Practicing the Way. Each week on this podcast, we share a teaching from John Mark or other trusted voices in the formation space. In today's teaching, John Mark encourages us to seek, know and persevere in the unique dreams that God has given each and every one of us. So if you, like me, have dreams that you've been waiting on for years or even new ones that you're not sure what to do with, I know this teaching is going to be deeply encouraging and empowering for you. As you're listening, you may like to ask yourself the question, what supernatural dreams has God put in my heart? Here's John Mark.
1: Hey, um, tonight we are wrapping up our practice on discovering your identity and calling. And this is just something that I have been learning in my own journey of discovering my identity and my calling that I find helpful. And um, I think you will find it helpful as well. If not, come back next week, okay? Let's start off here in Genesis chapter 37. Take a look at verse two. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, I'm just saying, was tending the flocks, that could be your vocation, prophetic word over your life. I hope not. With his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. He's a bit of a tattletale. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. Now, like, before we read the next part, how would you feel if your little brother said that to you? Yeah, I have a little brother. No. His brothers said to him, do you actually intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? In Hebrew, it means more like, you are an idiot. And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. But then he had another dream, and he did not learn from his mistake. He told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were all bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and he said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were all jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Joseph was a dreamer, and God's people have always been dreamers. As long as God has been in relationship with people, he has been giving them dreams. And when I say dreams, I don't just mean literal dreams when you are asleep. That too, for sure, we believe in all of that. But I mean it in a much broader sense, any kind of a vision for your future and the role that you are to play in the family of God, a prophetic word over your life from a family member or friend, or just a gut sense, this is going to happen, or that is going to happen, or an idea in your mind's eye that you just can't quite shake. Maybe your dream has to do with your career, the role that you wanna play in the healing and the renewal of our city. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it has more to do with a relationship, marriage or family or a child. Maybe it has to do with your own character, the kind of man or woman that you want to grow and mature into. Maybe it has to do with the justice issue or problem in our day or our age or business you wanna start or church you wanna plant or you get the eye but my guess is that on each and every one of you here there is some kind of a dream deep in your heart. Maybe more than one, maybe two or three or even more and the odds are that at least some of that dream is from the Spirit of God because you see dreams play a key role in our life. Without dreams we would just get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent right into the vortex of the busyness and the digital distraction and the materialism of our day and age, we would just wander our way through life and squander it on trivia. But dreams have the potential to operate kind of like a roadmap for life, or at least like a compass to keep you and I on track. In the language of the self-help world, they are how we, quote, start with the end in mind. Put into the language of our practice, dreams are how God leads us and how God guides us into our identity and calling, to be who God made us to be and do what God made us to do. But here's the thing. Dreams are a tricky thing to live with. Am I right? Because there is always a gap between the dream and the fulfillment of that dream, That gap might be a few days long, or a few months long, or a few years long, or a few decades long. But in that gap, we run the full gamut from hope and anticipation, and I can't wait, and faith, all the way to despair and impatience and doubt and cynicism and disappointment. Enter Joseph. I would argue that Joseph's story is a paradigm for how you and I are to live and live well in that gap between the dream and the fulfillment of the dream. Because for Joseph, and my guess is it's the same for you, I know it's the same for me, that journey from dream to the fulfillment of the dream is anything but a straight line. It's more of a zigzag, it's two steps, three steps forward, two steps back, it's honestly a very long and most of the time a very hard road that in the end is worth it, and in the middle is a pain in the butt. Now it would take all night to read Joseph's story, it's about 10 chapters long, but let's just read a few key moments along the way and talk about what it all means for you and me, okay? Okay, um, take a look again at verse chapter 37, verse 12. The story goes on. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near, we say Shechem, it's actually Shechem, if you can say that. And is just for the heck of it, you know. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. So Joseph goes on an errand for his dad. It's a multi-day or multi-week journey to check in on his brothers. Now skip down to 18. They saw him in the distance, en route, and before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that what? Dreamer, that's what he's known for, a dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say, hey, a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. This, by the way, just makes me feel so much better about my parenting skills, right, babe? Like after a few days with my kids over Thanksgiving, I have two boys who are always fighting, but this, we've yet to reach anything close to murder, all right? I have one wife, not four. I feel like I'm actually doing all right, okay? And in the story, so they conspire together, and they plot, and they take Joseph, and they first throw him into a cistern to kill him later. But then they look up, and on the horizon, they see this caravan of um, traders, slave traders. And they come up with an idea. Why kill him when we can sell the dude and make some profit off of his body and skip down to 28? So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Now, here's all I want you to notice. Joseph has a dream, and then the very next story is the exact opposite of that dream. Instead of Joseph's brothers bowing down to him, Joseph is bowing down to all sorts of other people. Joseph goes down to Egypt, not up to the father, and he goes down not as a master, but as a slave. Then if you know the story, it goes on to make matters worse. He is a slave and actually does a great job to this Egyptian by the name of Potiphar. But there's a run-in with Potiphar's wife. And Joseph is innocent, but there's a false accusation. And in the end, he is in prison. And then we read this. Turn over to chapter 40. Years go by. Joseph is now, was a slave. Now he is in prison. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt. So those aren't just like people that work in the kitchen. Those were both like advisory roles to the king, or in this case to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was angry with both of them, the chief cutbearer and the chief baker. So he puts both of them into the prison, and lo and behold, what a coincidence, it's the exact same prison where Joseph is. And on the first night, both the cupbearer and the baker have a dream and wake up all distraught. Then, look at this, six When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And so the baker and the cupbearer tell Joseph the dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams then a few days go by, and both of the dreams on the third day come to pass. One of them is put to death, and the other is put back to the right hand of the king. But then look at the closing line of the story, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph he wept. He forgot them. Now, notice, the story goes on. Joseph interprets other people's dreams, but his own dreams are unfulfilled. Just imagine that for a minute, right? You have this dream, this thing in you. You feel like it's from God, and literally your life is 180 degrees bent in the exact opposite direction, and you can interpret but you can't actually live into your own dream. The baker has a dream. Three days later, it comes to pass. Joseph has a dream. Years go by and nothing. He is literally left to rot in a dungeon. Turn the page. Chapter 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. So now, just everybody's dreaming. It's like right and left. It's the new thing to do. And goes on. There's the dream. Look at verse 8. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him you ever had a dream that you really feel like it is from God or there's something to it, but you have no idea what it means, and you, and you feel tension and confusion and distraught and that itch in your mind. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night. Each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there. Notice he does not even remember his name. Just, it's just anonymous. A young, I don't even remember his name. A servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams. He interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position. The other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. That's right. And he was quickly brought from the dungeon When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So there's a twist in the story. Out of the blue, out of nowhere, you go, if you're Joseph, you go from the dungeon to right in front of the most powerful man on earth at that time. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said. Rumor is that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Notice 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but... God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Okay, notice just for a moment, all of that cocky ego, it's all gone. It's been beat out of him by prison and years. He's older, he's a bit wiser, and now there's a humility about Joseph. Oh, I can't do it but there's still a faith. God can. And he, Pharaoh tells the dream. Then in the story, Joseph interprets the dream. Then skip down to 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning as wise as you. So when he was young, he was an arrogant fool Now he's marked by a humility, and he's thought of as the wisest man in the empire, right? And you would imagine it would be pretty hard to impress somebody like Pharaoh. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater to you, Wow, okay, so now the dream is just starting to come to pass. The slave is now, everything is turned upside down or right side up and he's made into a ruler, but still the brothers are not in the story. And it's been years since that dream and years since the brother. Turn to chapter 32. Look down The bro- in the story, there's a famine now. That all has to do with Joseph's dream if you know it. There's a famine and the brothers are, you know, multiple week journey up to the north And the family, Joseph's family of origin, is out of food and starting to go hungry. And so Jacob, the dad, says, all right, boys, you go down to Egypt and buy. We have money, but we don't have any food. Go buy food. So the brothers come down, and guess who is the one there to sell the food? It's little brother Joseph. Take a look at six. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Are you picking that up? As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams. Can you imagine, you're just at work one day, you know, running the empire, whatever it is you do, saving the world from starvation, you know, one shady business deal at a time, whatever, and in walk your brothers, there's Reuben, there's Judah, there's all the men that sold you into slavery, and after all of these years, that itch in the back of your mind that would never go away, was that dream from God, or was I crazy? Is there a God? Is God actually with me? Or am I all alone in the world? And then there are the brothers, next thing you know, bowing down in front of you, just like in the dream. Now, next in the story, there's a whole bunch of drama that we don't have time to get into. Turn over to chapter 43. Long story short, the brothers go back home, still no clue that was little brother Joseph, go back home, a few more years go by, they run out of food again, they take a road trip down to Egypt to buy more food again, and then we read this, chapter 43, look down at verse 26. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they what? Bowed down before him to the ground. Are you picking this up, right? We read it not once, but now twice. Then there is more drama, a whole lot of stuff, and Joseph just can't keep it in anymore. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, get out of here, leave me alone. And then Joseph, verse 3, said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is dad still alive? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And you would be too. Can you imagine? Dang. Little brother that we sold into slavery. He's the second most powerful man on earth. And our life is literally in his hands. But then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Imagine the fear, the trepidation. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a very great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of this entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. And the story goes on. What a story, right? And that's the short version. If you're new to the Bible, go read it on your own week off. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from this story about how to live in that gap between a dream and the fulfillment of that dream. Tonight, I want you to notice four things about Joseph's dream. When the dream finally comes to pass, it is one different, two harder, three longer, and four better. A short word on each. First off, different. Joseph, in the dream, sees all of his brothers bowing down to him, but he does not see Egypt, He does not see slavery. He does not see prison. He does not see a seven-year famine. He does not see any of that. He sees a little, but he is blind to a lot, and dreams are often like that. The reality is to the dream what the tree is to the seed. All of the raw materials are there in that seed, but it's just a sneak peek. It's just a fraction of the whole When we get a dream from God, whether it's a literal dream when you are asleep or more of a vision in your mind's eye or a a desire or an idea, whatever it is, you might get 10% of it or 20% of it or if you're lucky, 50%, but there are whole bits and pieces, whole chunks that are missing. When we see the future, most of the time it's fuzzy, it's not clear. Yoda even said something about that and he was very wise, right? Paul, yet another wise man who actually was a real person, said something very similar. He said, quote, now we know in part, but then in the future, the resurrection of the dead, then we will know as we also are known. One of my favorite quotes about prophecies from the theologian N.T. Wright, who says this, quote, all prophecy about the future is signposts pointing into the fog, I love that. Think of a road trip to San Francisco or to the coast, signpost pointing into the fog. It's this way, right? And that's all that you get. It's not a photograph. It's a signpost pointing into the fog. And that's because the point of a dream isn't to tell you what's going to happen in the future. It's to tell you how to live in the present. Let me say that again. The point of a dream or a vision or a prophetic word of your life or a sense from God isn't to tell you what's going to happen in the future. It's to tell you how to live in the present. In fact, God seems to be against his people knowing the future. There is an ancient sin that we read, all of, that we read about all through the Old Testament um, that was called divination, where men and women would divine the future through a witch or a spiritist or a medium of some kind, and divination is still alive and well. Why? Because there is a human bent in all of us, whether it's in the occult or right in the church, to want to know the future, whether it's through uh, astrology or a palm reader or through long-range business planning and reading in this seminar or like in the church tradition I grew up in, like crazy end-of-the-year prophecy update things about the end of the world and Revelation and a chart of exactly how it would happen week by week by week for the seven-year tribulation. Like, what in the world? Where are you getting this from? My goodness. We want to know the future because we think that knowledge is power and we think that if we can know the future, then we can have control over the future and if we can have control over the future, then we don't have to trust God and pretty much none of us wanna trust God. At least not until we're pretty far down the path in our apprenticeship to Jesus. In fact, the main thing that I have come to believe God is teaching me and you in the years over our maturity is to trust. Decline on anxiety, and arise in trust and peace and hope and surrender to the living God. God doesn't want us to have control. He wants us to have faith. That's why God will rarely, if ever, tell you what exactly is going to happen. Instead, he will tell you just enough about tomorrow to show you how to live today. All right, this is what you focus on. I do this all the time. God, show me what's coming, not to control the future and so I don't have to trust you. Like, he won't play that game. And if he does, it's because of your immaturity, not because of your maturity, and he has something better for you but because I need to know, what do I focus on right now? What do I give my time to, my money to, my energy to? What, am I, how, what should I be on the lookout for and watch out for right now? What do I need to know about this season of life? And is there a pitfall I need to avoid? Is there something I need to focus on in a relationship or a life or a work thing? Like those are the questions to ask. And because of that, when the dream does come to pass, most of the time, and again, this is all like as a general rule stuff tonight, Most of the time, it's a little bit different or even a lot different than we were expecting. I have learned the hard way that when I have a dream that I really feel is from the Spirit of God, that I should expect it, one, to come to pass, but two, it to come across quite a bit different than what I see in my mind's eye. So first, different. Second, harder. As I said, Joseph in the dream, he sees this picture in his mind's eye of his family bowing down to him, but he does not see the slave trade. He does not see the cistern. He does not see Potiphar's wife and the false accusation and the dungeon and years and nothing. Like he does not, he sees all of the good and none of the bad. We do this, am I right? All of us. If you're anything like me, when you get a dream or when you get a vision for your future, you romanticize it. Right, the future, at least I'm a bit of an idealist, so I, I'm worse than most, but still, I think as a general rule, most of us imagine something that we feel like God is stirring up in us for the future, it's, it's romanticized. It's warm and it's fuzzy and it's perfect and there's Adobe Photoshop just all over it and when we get there we'll just be so happy and we'll never be sad ever again. Any married people in the house tonight? Yeah, any single people in the house tonight? Yeah, come on. How many of you single people wanna get married? Thank you for the courage to put your hand up, right? It's great to want to get married, but the temptation is to romanticize it literally in your mind's eye. It will be like this. It will be like that. He will be so amazing." (laughs) That's a great one. Um, And will be like my soulmate somewhere out there. Doesn't the Bible teach that somebody out there is a perfect fit, somebody custom-made by God just to fit exactly into my... No, the Bible teaches that you're born sinful and so is every other person on the planet. Best case scenario, you have somebody that like their sin is a kind of okay fit with your sin. Best case scenario. (laughs) right? I love, Keller, I love Tim Keller's point that on one level, every single person on the planet is a bad fit for you. It's just that some are a lot worse than others, right? <laughs> wow. You're like, that's really cynical. It's biblical actually. <laughs> but we forget that the romantic Hollywood-esque thing, honestly, the older I get, Tammy and I are reading a book about this right now, I think more and more is actually alive from the pit of hell because it is disillusionment and disappointment waiting to happen. There's a healthy kind of romance, um, an other-centered, how can I think with creativity and love and a servant's heart to make this dinner or this experience or this picnic special for somebody I care about? And there is an unhealthy kind of romance. How can I get the next emotional high? How can I one-up? How can I keep this alive? And what if it was never made to be kept? Alive? What if God is doing something totally other in your life and in mine? You know what Paul writes about marriage? He writes, quote, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. <laughs> Call me cynical. That's a verse in the Bible, right? And all the married couples, you can't laugh right now, but you all know that's true. And honestly, I think that is one of the reasons why the divorce rate is through the roof right now because so many people go into marriage with stars in their eyes. And it's not that marriage is bad, marriage is good, it's that marriage is hard. And some sure are a bit harder than others, but I don't think anybody has it easy. And love, self love as defined by Jesus, which is self-sacrificial love to put the good of another above your own, that is never easy. And that will never come naturally to you. And that will ebb and that will flow. And of course, the invitation of Jesus is to love a person exactly as they are. Through every stage, through every age, through every size gene, through every, <laughs> everything, to love somebody exactly as they are. My point is... It's really easy to romanticize the future, whether it's marriage or your career or a thing you want to do for God, or the like what it's really easy to romanticize it in your mind's eye. You know, we think that life is the straight linear kind of arrow to success. My therapist calls it the gospel of upward mobility. We think about how that has started to creep into the church. We have this sense like life will just keep getting better and better and better and better and then I'll like go from this to wealthy to super wealthy to and then all of a sudden I'll turn in famous and I'll be beautiful and like, okay, that's an exaggeration. But we have this thing, it will just get better and better, hashtag the best of yet to come. Isn't that a Christian hashtag right now? When the reality is, yeah, there's a bit of truth in that, but life is not always exactly like that. Last year, um, I wrote a novel, in, like, as a hobby in my free time, I wrote a novel for my three kids, just to like nerd out and have fun. And, um, and I had no clue what I was doing. So I went off and I read a number of books about literary criticism. And I read this one called Plot and Structure by James Bell who uh, does some great work on plot. And I thought it was really fascinating. He breaks down literary structure into two major plot categories. And the first is what he calls a commercial plot. So this is, anybody see the last Thor? You know that spot where like, if you've seen the movie where his head gets his hair, or his hair gets shaved off, I'm not gonna tell you how or whatever, but it's like his hair gets shaved off, that's from the trailer, you should know that by now. And uh, where I'm sitting there watching it with my, we have all my children there, and Sunday leads over to Tammy and goes, oh, he looks like daddy. <laughs> <laughs> if only she just got glasses. Apparently her eyesight is not all that good. Oh, if only that was true. But this is Thor, right? Like it's right out of the gate and you hit an obstacle and you push past it and you hit an obstacle and you push past it and you hit an obstacle and you push past it and then you get to the end. Let's save the whole planet on the spaceship and I won't give it away, you need to go see it. It's a great film, all right? My, my point is, like, this is, a, this is every blockbuster movie in the summer. This is a page-turner novel, if you have one. This is a TV series you just can't put down. It's a commercial plot. Then there's another type of plot that is called a literary plot. This is a Pulitzer Prize book, right? Any of you read fiction? I read about a novel or two every single week, and I alternate back and forth between like a commercial kind of novel and a literary novel, and you get to the end of a literary novel, and it, just, it doesn't really end, it just stops. You know what I'm talking about? And you're just kind of sad. And you're like, wow, that was really smart. And I'm just <laughs> super depressed now. And you're like, wait, what was the point of that? Like, and it's just kind of up and it's down and it's more about the inner journey than it is about action, right? It's less about, let's go take on this alien and it's more about like, w- what is going on deep in your heart. And then sometimes the ending is hopeful Other times, the ending is not. It's downbeat, or it's ambiguous, or you kind of wonder why. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Is the story of Joseph a commercial plot or a literary plot? What's it more like? It's far more like a literary plot, right? Especially if you keep reading. We ran out of time all the way to the end of the story. And actually, his story is quite a bit better than most. In fact, if you really wanna know how to read the Old Testament, even if you're not a reader, I would go read one or two Pulitzer Prize winners just to get a feel for how that kind of literature works and how a lot of those stories end. Honestly, one of the most helpful things you can do to make sense of the Old Testament is go read a few like really snobby literary works because the Old Testament is brilliant literature. And you get to an end of a lot of the stories and it's just kind of like this weird ending. You're like, David's this man of God, and run after, and then the end of his life, he's like, kill that person, and he has like a young concubine in bed with him, and his son's a mess, and his family's a disaster, and this is the man after, and then the story ends. There's this one king who does like awesome, and then you get to the end, and then at the end, he turned away from God and had a foot disease, and that's the end of the story. (laughs) Like, what what author would end a story like that? Like, it was just great, and he caused a revival, and then he kind of turned away from God and ended up with a foot disease, so watch out. What's the moral of that story, like like wash your feet every night if you sin a lot? I mean, I don't, what's the point? And it's because they're not always to give you the shot in the arm. They're to empathize with the human condition. My point is that why is most of the Bible far more literary than commercial? And it's because most of life is far more literary than commercial. We rarely feel like Thor. Maybe that's just me. At the end of the day often we feel more like Joseph. Where is God again in my life? And I thought that was from him. And what is this? And I'm confused. That's more what it's like to be human. But so often we, just like Joseph, are blind to that reality. So first different. second, harder, third, as long as I'm just here to encourage you, longer. Longer. Okay, do the math with me. There are eight chapters in the story and upwards of 22 years between the dream and the fulfillment of the dream. Joseph is 17 when he dreams, he's 30 when he becomes the ruler of Egypt, but nine more years go by, seven years of plenty and then two years of famine before the dream even starts to come to pass. 22 years, my friends, is a very long time. As is often said, there is a time gap between the conception of a dream and the birth of a dream. Often God, just like he did with Mary on that first Christmas, will impregnate your heart with something, a vision for your future and the role you are to play in the family of God, but it's long before that dream will actually come to birth in the world. If you're anything like me, you hear from God and you think, great, let's do it. I had a dream a few nights ago. Woke up early, dream journal out, writing it down. I was like, okay, Thursday sounds good. Does that work for you, Jesus? All right, what if, what if that reality is months away or years away? What if it's 22 years away? Often the dream comes long before God's timing. As a general rule, the larger the dream, the longer the waiting period, and the smaller the dream, the shorter the wait. Small dream, short wait. Large dream, long wait. But either way, this waiting period is usually way longer than we expect. Did you see that one line at the beginning of chapter 41? Quote, when two full years had passed. Again, the Bible is scripture. It's also literature. You have to pay attention to the details. That one short throwaway line has so much just say, think about it, for two years, Joseph is just sitting there in prison. Can you imagine how he would have felt during that time? No word from God, no prophecy, no access to the Holy Spirit like you and I. No like, wake up in the morning, make your chem- Chemex in the jail cell, open to a psalm, do a little listening prayer. It's a picture from the Holy Spirit, like, oh, that feels really good. Go to your Bridgetown community on Thursday night, share a meal, share your heart. It's really hard. I just feel like I'm waiting. I'm waiting too. I with you it's okay like community no you're all by yourself in a cell no other worshiper of the one true god anywhere near you no prophetic word over your life and you're just stuck there waiting right now um how many of you read through the bible in a year anybody in the room i'm guessing at least a few of you yeah and um so i get you know at the end of the year if you read through the old testament uh December is like all the minor prophets or the short prophets. And so I think I'm a few weeks behind. I'm in Daniel. Where are we supposed to be right now, Bethany? Yeah. So you're behind too. That makes me feel so much better. That makes me feel so much better. Um, wherever. I'm a few weeks behind, but we're, we're into it. One of my favorite things to do when I read through all the prophets is just to count up the little time gaps between each prophecy. You'll notice at the beginning of each one there's a little line, it's like in the second year of King, somebody you've never heard of before, in the fourth month, da-da-da, the word of the Lord came. And then there's a chapter with a vision or something. One of my favorite things to do is to count up the time gaps in between. And you realize, man, it's easy to read that story and think, man, Hosea or whoever is just hearing from God right and left, and realize, oh, that was over 20 years. There are four four times of hearing from God over two decades. Daniel, I think there's six over 30 years or something like that. I'm sorry, 60 years. Six over 60 years. It's once a decade. And it's easy to forget in the long, slow work of God in our life. And waiting is hard. Am I right? I should know. I'm really bad at it. My personality is kind of long-range strategic planner. Living in the future is easy for me. Living in the here and now, present to God, present to the man or woman in front of me or my child, to a cup of coffee or a good meal is much harder But all that to say the gap between the dream and the fulfillment of the dream is usually much longer than we expect. Even in this series on identity and calling, it's really easy for you to get off track and look up at people that are ahead of you on the journey and say, oh, she has it all together. He has it all together. He's in a vocation, she's in a vocation. They know exactly who they are and who they are and exactly and look at what they are doing in the world is healing and there's renewal. And it's easy to like not imagine them as a 21 year old. Or imagine them like when they were in high school, when they were 25, or, you know, I love what I'm doing now. I feel like it's right out of who God made me to be. I've worked here for 15 years. And before that, I was an intern. I made $800 a month with no health insurance. Like, and that wasn't even a lot of money back then. It was just... Like, it's so easy. I remember working at a coffee shop just thinking, where is God in my life? I like coffee, but it wasn't like a cool coffee shop where you make a living wage and people are like, oh, you work at heart? You're cool. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was lame. It was by an airport and the coffee was terrible. And it was so, and I had to wear like this Italian apron. It was so bad. <laughs> it's easy to forget when you look up at people ahead of you Man, it was a very long time to get where they are. And you have your own journey to go on. It's a little helpful sometimes to look ahead. i look at them, look at her, look at him. But sometimes it's not. You have your own journey. You have your own identity. You have your own calling. And God is at work in your life. You just have to wait for it. And then finally, so different, harder, longer. And then finally, better. When Joseph's dream finally does come to pass, it's different, it's hard, it's longer, but it's also better than he ever expected. And when I say better, not necessarily by, you know, human metrics, but by the metrics of God. Joseph's dream, or at least his interpretation of his dream, was all about his own glory. Like his ego is just dripping off the page in chapter 37. And he did get glory eventually, but man, did it come at a high cost after decades of suffering and pain and rejection and humiliation. And in the end, the dream actually wasn't about Joseph at all. It was about saving the family of God for the family line in order to eventually usher in the Messiah of Israel and the world to put the world to rights. But before God could bring the dream to pass, he had to strip it of all Joseph's ego and even its idolatry, and that is God's MO. He takes our dreams that most of the time are all about us and our own glory, and then he'll make us wait. He'll make us face disappointment. Things won't go exactly as we hope. We won't exactly hear from God in the way we want to. We'll live in the confusing kind of in-between. And the beautiful thing that happens in that waiting period is if you let God into you, that dream is stripped of all of its ego and its idolatry down to the raw essence, the part of it that is from God, and you are stripped down too, and so am I. And we grow, we're set free for the need for that dream to come to pass and we grow and mature into the kind of people who can steward the fulfillment of that dream with wisdom and humility and Christ-like character. When people have dreams come to pass too early, it is rarely a good thing. And if you don't believe me, Google Justin Bieber, right? (laughs) Because they don't have the character yet to steward it. So let's buy four Lamborghinis and race down a street and get high. Like they don't have the wisdom and the humility and the Christ-like character yet to steward it or even to enjoy it. Because at that point it's an idol or it's entitlement. Both are bad options. So first, God has to deal with the idolatry of the dream because often the dream becomes our God rather than a gift from God. We want the dream more than we want the God who is the giver of the dream. We think that the dream will satisfy us and make us content when no dream can do that, no marriage can do that, no career can do that, no whatever can, only God can do that and you don't have to wait for that in the future. That is available to you right here and right now. This morning I was thinking about that line in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People tear that out of context and leverage it as some little self-help line for I can do this thing or I can get a wife or I can start a business or I can make money or I can plant a church or whatever. And in context, what is he writing about? If you know Philippians, he's writing about contentment and he's saying I've been poor and I've had plenty of money and I have learned to be content in any and all circumstances, quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You wanna know what's way hard? Harder than starting a business or having faith or raising money or whatever your mountain is, whatever your Goliath is, is being content in the here and now. And the one and only way to do that is through Christ Jesus who strengthens me in the here, in the now, whether you're in your dream job or you are some dead end minimum wage thing that you are just God save me, whether you're brand new and you can't wait to go to work every morning or you've been there for a while and you're dead tired, whether your marriage is a dream come true or something else, whatever it, it, wherever you're at, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can be content. You have everything you need to live the way of Jesus, to live what Jesus called life to the full, right here, right now, 17 years old in high school, 82 years old, a gal I was chatting with this morning, and nearing the end of your health. You, you have everything you need, right here, right now, and you can do this through Christ Jesus, there's no other way who strengthens you. But God will often let you sit there and wait and he'll often even let that dream die in order to free your heart from its need for the dream to come to pass, for its idolatry to bring you to a place where you are content with God himself, with food and with clothing. And anything else, You see, I have shelter, I have a heater, I have a community. I, have, I can read, I can write. I have a job where I make money. Like anything else is all bonus. And then at that point, you're finally ready for the fulfillment. And you're ready to enjoy it as a gift. You're full of gratitude, all the entitlement is gone, and you're ready to steward the dream or the fulfillment of the dream with wisdom and humility and Christ-like character. That's why dreams so often go through the cycle of death, burial, and resurrection, just like Jesus. There's a death to the dream, an Abraham and an Isaac kind of moment. There's often a burial. You just feel it's over and dead. But then frequently, not always, frequently, if the dream is from God, there is a resurrection but when it comes back to life, it is never the same. It's better, not better by our human metric system, but better in all the ways that matter most. And we find that it was more than worth the wait. So, to recap, different, harder, longer, better. Sounds like a Nike advertisement, but actually, I would argue it's a biblical theology of dreams that I would argue that you could lay this template over pretty much any character or new dream in the Bible. Moses and his dream of the exodus. Paul and his dream of apostle to the Gentiles. David and his dream for the temple or whatever it is. As I said before, God's people have always been dreamers. To end, and uh, Gerald is... And route up here to lead us in a little bit of listening prayer, but I think this weekend is just a call to dream and to dream well. Dream way bigger than just the tired, old, uncreative American dream. Don't dream about yourself. I mean, dream about the role you are to play and the, sure, but don't dream about like a bigger house or a new car, or a new cell phone, or whatever it is. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that stuff, but dream into your identity and your calling. Open up your mind's eye and even your heart to the Holy Spirit and allow God to drip deep into you a dream, and when it's different, trust God. That's what he's after is your trust. That's where freedom comes. When it's harder, don't give up. Man, so many people never experience the fulfillment of a dream because they bail way before. You just don't give up. Just give it, wait, go. When it's longer, wait. We inherit the promises in the language of Hebrews through faith and patience. Faith. Some of you, that's a word for you tonight. Faith and patience is the need of the hour. And when it's better, call all of your friends and throw a party. And the best thing about a dream coming to pass is not a dream coming to pass. It's that you have been changed through the process of dreaming. One of the most important things in that story is that Joseph's brothers don't even recognize him. That's what God will do with you and your transformation. If you open up your life to his dream and you wait and decades often go by, not months, decades, God will transform you and people won't even
0: recognize you and it will be a beautiful thing. Let's stand and pray. As someone who's had a lot of dreams in my life and some that are long held and I've been waiting on, I found that message deeply encouraging. I love something John Mark said earlier in his message. The point of a dream or a vision or a prophetic word over your life or a sense from God isn't to tell you what's going to happen in the future, It's to tell you how to live in the present. Later, he says, it's to draw us near to God. And in the end there, John Mark encourages us to dream with God into our identity and our calling, to open our mind's eye and even our heart to the Holy Spirit, to allow him to sow something deep within us and to trust him. So we're just going to take a moment right now to open our hearts and minds to God. It might be about a, an old dream or vision or word, or it might be to receive something new. And we're just going to take half a minute to take a few deep breaths, open ourselves up to God and allow him to place his dreams within us. Let's do that now. This podcast is from Practicing the Way. We develop resources to help churches and small groups apprentice in the way of Jesus. And all that we make is completely free because it's already been paid for by The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Brandon from Indianapolis, Indiana, Julia from Auburn, Washington, Tammy from Tustin, California. Nate from Denver, Colorado, and Delaney from Edmonton, Alberta. Thank you all very much. To join the circle or to learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.